in this episode with Paul Russell. Some of the band members became quite worried about the fact that I was uh, in the church. You know, there was a song, ironically, called, uh, it was called Sex Police, and it was, it's a song about censorship. Right. <laughs> and so ironically, I was wanting to censor the song about censorship. So the deal was, you need to make a choice whether you're in or out because we need to get this artwork finished and we're making this video. And so I made the decision to, to leave. Um, ironically, I'm not uh, particularly religious now. I'm not involved in the church. kind of character would I meet? Who, who, who would I be talking to? Pretty shy as a kid. Um, I think I t took a little while to warm up. I was the sort of person who would be kind of hiding behind my mum a bit, you know, as a toddler and as a kid. Um, but then I think once I was in an environment where I felt pretty safe and comfortable, I think I was like any kid, you know, pretty, pretty boisterous, pretty energetic. Mm. Um, I was always tutuing on things. This is, you know, I, I've made a career out of, of being a drummer and I think that was the roots of that. You right. know, sort of going through my school years, I was always that kid. It was just tapping on the desk and I couldn't right, yeah. keep still, you know. Yeah. Um, and so there's always that. And I think my, my parents, when I was younger, probably channeled that by putting a pair of drumsticks in my hand, giving me some pillows and putting some headphones on and saying, right, have it that you know you're always yeah, yeah. tutoring on stuff and so yeah I think a bit shy took a while to warm up but I think once I was warmed up I was away yeah, yeah I would think okay yeah and, and what what kind of upbringing do you have where where were you where, where were you living where was uh, Mount Roskill central Auckland um, Bible Belt capital of the of, of Auckland city I think um, I grew up in the church so pretty conservative upbringing you know from when I was probably two so my parents came from probably probably uh, my dad fairly fairly interesting rough background and sort of found some continuity in the church and stability through that and so I think that's probably why my parents um, sort of got so involved in that so they were very heavily involved in the church growing up so that was sort of my whole community growing up as a kid, so we were in a pretty uh, sort of orthodox church, I suppose. It was, it's classed as an open brethren church, so it's not your your classic brethren with the haircuts and the scarves and all that mm -hmm. sort of stuff, but it's it's a step down from that, so it's still fairly, um, fairly insular, 
you know. So so everything that we did sort of tended to revolve around the church community. And so all my friends went to church and all that sort of stuff. So as a kid growing up, it's awesome because, you know, I'm, I'm at this point, I'm not aware of any politics of religion yeah. and all this stuff. I'm just a kid running around. And so yeah. I had an endless supply of mates and things to do and activities and camps and all that sort of stuff. So so growing up in that environment as a kid is great, you know, and then, and then you get to an age and you sort of you get to understand what's going on behind a lot of that stuff and, yeah. and, and a bit of the – uh, uh, sort of authoritarianism and the oppression and that side of things that comes into it, but so pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. And so, did you have siblings or? Yeah, so I've got one sister. She's two and a half years older than me, Angela. Um, yeah, just the two of us, really. Yeah. So I'm the I'm the baby. Yeah. yeah. Very good. And so, school. What was school like for you? I went to a school called May Road Primary. I don't know if that was a low decile school but we were in a pretty pretty much a blue collar a lot of council houses kind of um area of mm-hmm. auckland mm-hmm. uh very mixed in terms of lots of different cultural groups um but again as a kid it was great i just had good mates um in so there was definitely it, it was a sub genre for sure it wasn't a big mainstream thing like you know the Swiss made league, like there's your big prime sponsor. <laughs> that kind of tells you everything, you know, it's like, yep. Okay. That's as good as you're going to get. Yeah. So it was, it was basketball and it was football and it was rugby. Uh, and, but you know, I dabble in all sorts. I played squash for a little bit, did mm. a bit of odd tennis and stuff, but nothing, nothing serious. But I got into surfing pretty late, like late teens, early twenties, which is pretty late mm. to get into surfing. Um, oddly enough, I got into surfing because I have a fear of waves and I have a fear of sharks. So, right. <laughs> so was, my motivation was like, well, how am I getting over this? So let me put myself out there and, and see if I can right. sort of conquer that fear a little bit. Um, so that's something that I still enjoy doing now. So you've um, conquered it then? No. Oh, no. No, still I still have a fear of waves and I still have a pretty healthy fear of sharks. Well, it's probably um, a good – yeah, I was going to say it's probably healthy. A good, good it's thing. probably pretty good to have a healthy – Fear of sharks. Um, yeah. uh, so, and, I, and I'm still uncomfortable in big surf for sure, but it's my way of uh, sort of facing it a little bit. Yeah. Right. Um, and I and in my uh, early days of doing that, I was fairly carefree and careless with it in a way because um, when you're younger, you do think you're a bit more bulletproof. So I, you know, I just go out and throw myself around and mm. and go over the falls and, and hope for the best. And so yeah. I, I learned to surf on the West Coast uh, out at um, Pihar and mm. uh, Karikari and Māori wow. Bay. and um, So there's some pretty heavy surf out there. Yeah. Um, and not that I was amongst it when it was super heavy. You know, I'm, I'm still pretty sceptical of any big waves, but um, big enough to throw me around. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I remember going out uh, probably a bit foolish, really. I would just drive out by myself and – um, just take the board if I had an afternoon off or something and I'd just try and get amongst it. And sometimes I was out on my own and, you know, there obviously other people around. But I remember being out at Piha once and the sun starting to go down and it was fairly heavy surf for me. probably wasn't even very big. Um, and I, I'm sort of looking around and everyone else sort of seems to disappear <laughs> and I'm just sitting out the back by myself and I'm 
starting to freak out and think, oh, okay, sun's going down. And these waves have felt like they were a bit too big for me. So I just had to kind of suck it up and think the only way I'm getting in is to catch one of these things. And <laughs> and so I think I just straight lined it and then, yeah. you know, got out in front of it and then just got down on my stomach and just held on basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I wouldn't put myself in that position now. Yeah. I don't know what was going through my head at the time. I was going to ask you what was going through your head at the time. <laughs> but yeah. It was more about actually if you've got a fear of sharks and waves, what drove you to go surfing? Like is, is was it something like actually, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, if that, if that was me, I, I probably it would be the last thing I'd think about doing if that was I'd go do something else. Right. But I'm just wondering whether you known you've got that that fear is that a challenge for you do you see that as something you have to kind of overcome yeah so i i i did see it as a challenge for one but also i could see the beauty on the other side of being in a position where i wasn't afraid of being in that situation and what that would feel like you know and and i i love and i still do i love watching surfing on tv i love watching big wave surfs i'd never do that but i i love the power of it and I, I do love just being in the water. I think the thing about surfing, which is probably f- fairly unique, is that you're out of your element. You know, you, we're, we're used to having our feet on the ground. We have some control as humans in that environment and and you're floating around in a place where you're not supposed to be, really. Um, and you're kind of at the mercy of those elements and you're trying to harness some of those elements to create a moment. And um, so that the appeal of that looking at what that could feel like was the thing that drove me to to try and push through and, and overcome uh, that fear of of the water. Yeah, so that's interesting, yeah. Um, so that, that outweighed the the fear factor. The, the the potential of what what it could feel like and what you could have, the gain of something. Yep. In theory, yeah. In practice it's still you know, you still <laughs> shit yourself. That's the thing, you know, and yeah, yeah. and you think what and, and you do catch yourself in those moments and think, what 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 am I doing this for you know because because i'm not comfortable here this freaks me out you know um but then you you do get those and this is the thing with surfing is such a um it takes ages to get to a point where you are you can be comfortable so much of it you spend the first year just floundering around trying to figure it well i do <laughs> you know, um, I'm sure there's probably a lot of people who do it much more naturally, but but I spent the first year or so just paddling furiously and get you know just taking waves on the head and and it just felt like a constant challenge. Yeah. But then you get that one moment where you're just sitting out there and then you feel you feel the power of the wave and you you get to your feet for a split second or whatever and you get this glimpse of what it might be like to kind of actually have a ride on a wave and you're like wow that's that's enough. Yeah. You know, if I got one of those little moments in a session, then that's enough to get me back for another, that's good. another go. Yeah. 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 So what you so what you learned from surfing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you applied to any other aspects of your life? You um, know, that sort of looking at, you know, being kind of not future focused is not the right term, but looking ahead to what it might be like if. Yep, that's the principle that I apply, and again, it's it's something that's become. A truth for me is not something I went in saying I'm going to do this and I'm going to envisage whatever and sort of you know do a mind trip on myself. It was just uh, it's become what it is, and I will always try and imagine what would be on the other side of the thing that I'm fearful of, yeah. uh, whether that's um, 
an audition or something, you know, like like, you know, auditioning for Stomp or something, you know, in London, that's a big deal. Um, or going through my osteopathic training, uh, which I did in the UK as well. So uh, going into a big exam, you know, where I've got to treat a patient, I have eyes looking on me with their clipboards and doing all this stuff, you know. Yeah. I would always try and think, what what would it feel like on the other side of that with me having done that well yeah. and feeling proud of myself and, um, and try and be in that moment in my head, taking that in before I go into it, you know. So yeah. it's not that it allays your fear completely by any means, you know. You still feel the nerves and all the rest, but you've got something to aim for and um, and it does it does bring you a sense of composure in the midst of what's a lot of chaos, you know, with anything that's scary, whether it's a job interview or taking on something new or whatever it is. Um, yeah. Yeah. So is that is that something you've had to work out or has that come naturally for you? Well, the, reason, the reason I ask is because I think, you know, a lot of people will tend to focus on what they're fearful of, you know, where mm-hmm. and where focus goes, energy flows. So you put more energy into yeah. what you're fearful of, as opposed to, you know, like you've just said, really, you know, creating some calmness and composure, equanimity, and, and thinking about actually, if I can do this, then I'll have that, or I'll be in this position. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things there. So one of the things going back to being a kid, I've you know, I've had, I've got quite an interesting relationship with my my father. We're, we're somewhat estranged these right. days, you know, but but we grew up being very close. Um, and for all the craziness in my father's life, one of the things that he was consistent with that I recall as a kid is that nothing was off the table and everything was possible for me as a kid. Mm. Um, and in his mind, you know, and there was just always this sense of encouragement and, you know, you can do anything some kind of thing coming from him, which is uh, I'm eternally grateful for, you know, despite all the, uh, you know, however things are now, that for me set me up as a mindset, I think, as a kid Mm. to just feel like, cool, all right, if, if... I want to do that, then that's that's at least in the realms of possibility for me. It's not, mm. oh, well, you you know, think about your limits. You've got to, mm. you know, um, uh, hedge bets, and you know, it's like, oh, what 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 do you want to do? Who do you want to be? Is the kind of thing that whether that was his direct message, but that was the message I got was that, and not not in a egotistical way, mm. just that if. Uh, if there's something out there to be had, you could have that if you wanted to do that. Um, and so, yeah, super grateful for that. Um, and I think that's part of what puts you in that mindset that enables you to say, if that's in the realms of possibility, then that's something that I could achieve if I want to do that and if I set my mind to do it and try to do it, you know. Um, and the other thing is growing up uh, in the church where I where I was, so we, we came from, I think I mentioned, you know, this quite conservative, fairly closed in church, but in my early teens, we, our family left that church and we went to a, a more, I guess you'd call it fairly charismatic, um, sort of happy, clappy church, really, um, which is all about the 
the bright lights and the bells and whistles and, and the music and all that stuff. So as a kid, that was quite exciting for me. And, and I got involved in music a lot in that environment. And there was um, uh, a key guy uh, there, a guy called Duncan Miller, who um, uh, and his wife Debbie, who were really supportive of me as a young guy. Mm. And, and I looked up to him as a bit of a mentor character. And he was very, and is very successful in, in business and, and life, you could say. And so he uh, made a point as, I guess, a, a leader of the sort of music department in that church to try and develop the sort of personal and interpersonal skills and uh, awareness and leadership attributes of the people around him. And so he would spend a lot of time with us uh, going through principles and of of what it means to um, to be a leader and to have self belief and to motivate people and all that sort of stuff. So so we would go through things like you know the Stephen Covey Seven Habits for Highly Effective People, the um, developing the leader within you, all this this kind of you know this fairly American um, uh, I guess a kind of self help leadership stuff. You know we we would go through a bit of that, but in in a pretty organic way. Um, and so I, I think they, they were also really formative years for me because that was when I was in my mid-teens to early 20s. So you're really taking on stuff. You know, you, there's a lot of grey area in your life and you're filling that with all these ideas at that stage. And so I think that really helped as well. Mm. Yeah, so those couple of things sort of gave me a bunch of tools and I guess a bit of a mindset of having a fairly positive approach to things mm. and being able to look at something in front of you and think, how can I, how can I get through that? How can I make something of that? You know, I've, I've always had a fairly glass half full kind of view about things. Mm. Yeah. It's good. To, yeah. I, I, I'm interested to hear you talk about that, you know, like that sort of positive influence at a, at a young age that's, that's made you believe that you can achieve anything you put your mind to. Clearly, you you have right. You've got a fantastic career, and I and I, in my mind, I'm sort of thinking about, you know, the the generations of today and our kids. You know, you've got kids, mm-hmm. and so so have I. And, um, you know, I, I read about how you know this these sort of later generations are more entitled and. Uh, we've we've filled them with all these ideas that they can do anything, so therefore they're entitled, or, or they feel like they're entitled to anything. But but again, I, but I actually think there's there's got to be a balance, right? It's um, it's not a given. You've had to go make it happen. All you were given was the belief that if you put effort in and you put you focus your mind on it, then you can achieve it. Um, how 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 is that translating in your family now? How, you know, like. You've, you mentioned your father um, and the relationship. You've touched on the relationship you might have now or not have now, but mm-hmm. that you did have when you were younger. Um, and, and that positive influence on you. Are you is that the relationship you've got with your children? Is that are you you know kind of replicating that, um, or or is it different in this generation? It's a tricky one to answer because I guess you'd have to ask my kids <laughs> as to how they <laughs> yeah, feel yeah, about yeah. themselves, you know. Um, but that that's certainly something that uh, my wife and I feel is really important and, and certainly like my, my oldest daughter is 18, so I almost say was important because 
it's really pivotal at a younger age, I think, that those sort of values are, are embedded, you know, just – and it's it's not about um, the heights to which people can achieve anything or, you know, it's it's about feeling secure in yourself as a person, mm. you know, and then the other stuff is whatever it's going to be, you know, you're going to do whatever comes and you're going to make of – of life what you will but if you see life from a point of view that you are comfortable in your own skin I think that's the most important life lesson ever particularly if you think of how much and and this is something that it does seem at least more prevalent now is that there's so much as you say all this expectation that's out there because people uh, see these um you know, you've got this X factor generation. You know, where it's like everybody sees the bright lights and the the, the snapshots of the best parts of everybody's existence. You know, and so you see all the nine year old proteges. You know, at their best, and you know, and your nine year old sitting there thinking, well, why aren't I like this person? And suddenly you're in a position where they're um, comparing themselves to some form of outlying greatness. Yeah. at an age where they should have no expectations of that. And that's something that's um, it's not taking us by surprise, but it's it just is what it is, and it's unfortunate. You know, when I grew up, uh, you know, I was playing basketball and running around, and I, I didn't have my head in the clouds. Like it's, it's, I talk about those things uh, that were instilled in me at a young age, but it's not like I was looking at every situation like it right how can I achieve the greatest moment out of this as a as a kid I'm not doing that I'm just running around feeling happy and content you know and what I see in the current generation and and my kids included is that that those moments of happiness and contentment are fraught with so much interjection of self-doubt and comparison that I never had as a kid growing up, yeah. because our world was so much smaller. You had your circle of friends, you had your wider school, you had the All Blacks, mm. you know, <laughs> and and you had whatever was on TV, you know, the celebrities that came along for Telethon or something. Yeah. You, you weren't comparing yourself to a million other kids doing amazing things for 15 minutes on the TV. You didn't have Facebook telling you all the stuff you couldn't do. Um, or how you didn't measure up, you know, you're just hanging out with me and my mate, you know, playing some basketball. And, and so you, you feel instantly on a par with your peers and you feel like you're in the right trajectory for where you're at. Mm. And I don't know if our kids have the luxury of that because everything's designed to push them. Everything's designed to tell them what they should be and what they're not at the moment, but what they could be. You know, and and I, I see that in my kids, and I think it's a shame um, that they're not allowed to. Well, I mean, they they can be kids, and they are kids, but you know that 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 life life interrupts them so much with other bullshit. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I, they've got the added pressure, I suppose, as well of of dad being quite successful in, in his career. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and you know, doing well in in bands and uh, and like you say in West End shows like Stomp, which we'll we'll talk about. You know, 
Is that a factor for them? I mean, obviously, they've got this whole world of social media where they can compare and contrast their lives to others. Yeah. But actually, at home, uh, is that a, is that a, a um, Not so much for my youngest because, you know, she's not uh, – I don't think that's a factor for her. You know, my youngest is just turned 12. My oldest is 18 and she's now a musician in her own right, has been for the last few years. She plays bass and she sings in a band. And, and so I think the music – side of things and my background has become more of something that she recognizes and and uh, I I guess has an influence to some degree you know on, yeah. on her thinking it's it's hard to know exactly what that is again that's probably a question for her but um, yeah she she I, I think you know the 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 penny has dropped a few times for her mm. it, and you know with them growing up of course they you know, I'm I'm just me. I'm just I'm just dad, and I'm yeah. doing my thing, and um, and so you know, I think it's and you know, she's looked back on some of those experiences that she's had as a kid because she, you know, we're quite lucky that you know she's been exposed to a lot of things growing up that other kids weren't necessarily mm. able to do as well. We've, we've done a fair bit of travelling, and and you know, she's um, you know, been backstage at at, at events and different things and stuff that that other kids probably didn't experience, but to her that was normal too. So, yeah, yeah. you know, and now she's kind of looks back on some of those experiences like, wow, that's okay. That's a different different level of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors. I'm really pleased to announce that we have Sharp New Zealand as a sponsor. And it's great to have Sharp on board because as a customer, I can speak about their products and services from personal experience. And it feels good to be able to endorse and recommend the company because of the level of satisfaction we have regarding the services they provide. And across my businesses, we've certainly been impressed with the care and collaboration we've experienced in our dealings with Sharp. It's certainly a brand that we trust. Sharp has a long history of creating breakthrough products designed to meet the needs of people living in New Zealand. Sharp's leadership in technology innovation ensures it's at the forefront of the pack, providing business solutions from printing and photocopying to interactive meeting solutions and ICT phone systems. No matter where you are or what size your organisation, whether you're large or small, Sharp New Zealand can provide their services to you nationwide. If you're looking to upgrade your technology or renew your photocopier leases, talk to your local Sharp team or visit the website at sharp.net.nz. And all of those stuff, you know, it's amazing what does it influences uh, consciously and unconsciously. And, you know, I'm sure that her growing up with dad being a musician will have influenced her, even if you weren't trying to directly influence her, it would have had to. Well, this is the thing, like, I, I did directly try and influence her. Oh, you, <laughs> you, did? Know, right. you know, we, we were kind of thinking, right, well, uh, when she was probably about oh, maybe coming up eight or something, you know, we were like, so let's, let's see if she wants to do some music stuff. And we'll, so we bought her a keyboard, you know, and, um, uh, and I think we – I've, I've never pushed them towards drums, um, but uh, so we, we got her this keyboard and then we got her a ukulele and, and you know, I, I was keen on getting some online thing where, you, you know, they can learn the piano and do stuff. And, and she just never really – Talk to her, mm. and but then of her own accord, she decided that she wanted to play bass guitar. Like I think this was in second year of intermediate school, I think it was, mm. and that 
that was not my doing. That was her, you know. Um, and so she has just gone down her own pathway with that. And the cool thing that's super exciting for me is that, you know, I, I was thinking, oh, I wonder if she'll be a musician. I wonder if she'll do this stuff. Um, and she's just gradually discovered her own path of that completely, it feels irrespective of, of anything I've done or, or whatever. She's been immersed in, in that same feeling that I had because it it's, comes into its own more in high school when you've got the, the you know, the dexterity and a little bit of experience to actually make something that uh, that works and, and inspires you and sounds half decent. You know, that's when you get inspired and you're like, well, you create those magic moments with your friends in a room and you're like, wow, was, we could be a band and we could do this stuff. And um, so she's just discovered that like anyone, like I did, you know, um, and it's that's exciting to see. And so I, it's really what was really cool for me was to go and I remember seeing her perform for the first time and sing, and I had never really seen her do it. And I don't know if it was because of my background that she's never, you know, she was kind of keeping that to herself because of the fact that maybe I, she thought I had expectations or something, mm. but she was just off doing this whole thing for a few years at high school, and then we kind of caught up with it and went to see her do this performance. And me and my wife are sitting there and just proud as punch, you know. Yeah. It's like amazing. Like damn, all right, you got some swagger. Yeah. You, you know she's <laughs> she's singing and and she's playing bass at the same time and and she's nailing it and she she looks great on stage. She knows how to move. It's like all right, you got that whole picture going on, and I was not a part of that at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I I wasn't trying to shape that and yeah. do stuff. She was just off, yeah. and and I was very fortunate to witness it. It was right. cool. Very good. So if if we can then let's let's. Turn back the clocks a little bit and talk about how you started in music. You've That's turning the clock back quite a way. <laughs> <laughs> but you've alluded, you've alluded to one or two things, and and you uh, mentioned earlier about always tapping on things and mm -hmm. um, your parents noticing that and giving you a, you know uh, something to basically play the drums. Channel on. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then you mentioned obviously church and the music side of things there. Mm -hmm. um, when you were younger. And I'm, you know, when, when we talk about little ball, what did you want to be when you when you sort of grew up? You know, was, uh, it, was it was music a factor back? You know, at what point did music become a thing for you? I don't know if I ever was ever thinking that music was going to be a career pathway when I was younger. Like I loved, like I, I would get lost in music for sure. Mm. So, you know, this is I grew up on my dad's music, so I I grew up on. Joe Cocker and Dire Straits and Fleetwood Mac and Pink Floyd, um, Cliff Richard. My dad was a big Cliff Richard right. fan. Um, and so I would just sit, you know, those head, the headphones were ridiculously big back yeah. in those days. And on my tiny head, they probably were even ridiculous. They had the little curly cable to go yeah. to, the, to the massive stereo system that took up <laughs> half the wall. Um, and I would just put these headphones on and I, um, my my parents quite smart. They gave me a pair of sticks, but they didn't give me a kit. They just gave. I'll just use pillows. Right. Just genius idea, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not yeah. making any noise, yeah. really. But I'm sitting there, and as so I had, I didn't have any lessons at this point. I didn't have a drum kit, but I had some sticks in my hand, and I and I would just put on like Dire Straits, Telegraph Road, which is like you know this kind of epic tune, and I would 
just sit there lost and yeah. and go off in my own world. But I wasn't. Uh, and the other one, I, I guess you know, uh, Phil Collins, Genesis, you know, all that, um, all that stuff. Big, big Tom's. Tom's up part of the drum kit. I should probably say all this do 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 do. All that stuff was very exciting for me. Um, and but I, I didn't think of it as a career thing. It was just something I was doing at the time. I thought I was going to be a chef, right? Yeah, which is some you know. And I, I do love cooking. I thought I was going to be a chef, and then I thought I was going to, I don't know, I was going to be in the army at some point. Right. You know, it, and I just oscillated through typical kid stuff. You know, I think yeah. maybe I wanted to be a policeman. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Um, but a chef is the one that kind of right? probably was the most consistent I would come back to. I love cooking. My mum's a, uh, a, a caterer and, and we've always, food is a big part of my family. I'm part um, Fijian. So, you know, well, what, with most um, societal groups, food is a central thing, but certainly with Pacific Islanders, it's a big thing as well. So, you know, food was always the the point of communication and family gathering and all that sort of stuff. And when you grow up in the church like I did, it was very much around um, groups of people coming together and mm. sharing stuff. And so there's always these big meals. And and so I grew up in the kitchen watching my mum. And so I'm, I'm the sort of person who doesn't really cook from recipes so much. I just like have a look around and I'm, I'm like, we've got a bit of this, we've got a bit of that. Mm. Oh, I can feed 10 people. Let's go, you know. Yeah. Um, and I got that from my mum. She's also a creative side, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's true because it's it's less logic. I'm 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 not concerned about reading a step by step thing. I'm just like, give me some flavors, give me some tactile stuff, and, and yeah. we'll put it together, and we'll see what comes out. Yeah. Yeah. So so when did the move uh, go from being a chef towards uh, drummer in a band? What what, what age were um, you? Well, this is now we're talking more high school. So this is where again you've got some level of technical skill that you can put string together that actually gives you those magic moments, you know. Um, and I got into uh, so I, I was in a, a band called Supergroove, which is you know fairly successful New Zealand band back in the nineties, and that I joined that band when I was fourteen um, from high school, and we were all very young. And I was the youngest of the group, and we were called the Low Down Dirty Blues Band at that point, so a seven-piece yeah. blues band. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was getting involved in that um, and, and the, the kind of school shows prior to that that kind of gave me that buzz of performance. You know, you have the lights, you have the pressure and the moments, and you're creating this uh, this atmosphere and this vibe for people to, to experience something. Um, and you do get hooked on that buzz. Um, and so I guess that was when, when I got involved in, uh, what became Supergroove, that was probably the first, uh, band that was, you know, we, we all took it really seriously, you know, we were young, but we rehearsed a lot and we were, um, we were playing in, in jazz and blues clubs with, uh, sort of respected adults of the time. So sort of Midge Marsden and Beaver and the Best Boys were these kind of headline acts that um, uh, it was actually the drummer from the Karuba Blues Brothers um, that introduced me to the band. So he was the drum teacher at my school at Linfield College and um, he was filling in for the rest of the guys uh, in the band because they didn't have a drummer. 
and they would open for the Karuga Blues Brothers. And so he was like, oh, you need to check out this kid that I teach at, at this school. And so he introduced me and, and that's how I got to know the guys. Um, right. And so, so from that point on, it was full immersion. Basically, you know, we, we would rehearse a couple of times a week and we were gigging and we were starting to um, uh, travel a little bit. We'd go, go to Hamilton and play a, play a show, which is a massive thing, you know. Like, yeah. I sort that out with my mum, like, you know, all right. And she's like, who's taking you down when you come back? All this sort of stuff. And um, and I think we got quite a, a, a lot of recognition because we were so young. Mm. So we're these young kids playing this. In, in these blues and jazz circuit stuff with all these adults and and we weren't really allowed in the club, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so yeah. so there's actually an article. Not old enough to be in there. Totally. There's an article that said uh, when you're 16 and the doorman says no and it was about us going to this show somewhere and the guy wouldn't let us in because we were too young and it's like, no, we're playing. You don't understand. He's like... What is, you know, um, and and of course, you know, it makes for quite a good story. Um, yeah, yeah. But that was pretty f full immersion from that point. That was music for me was my thing. Yeah. So I, you know, but the the point that you were introduced to the opportunity of the band, were mm -hmm. you looking to be in a band? Yeah, and I had been in a band. Oh, you had. Uh, so I, uh, this was the early days of, I guess, what became Rock Quest. You know, for high school bands. Um, Maybe it was Rock Quest. I don't know if it was even called that. Um, but uh, my the very first band that I joined was called, we called ourselves Felicity's Breakfast. Right. And we thought our point of difference, because we made we made the regional finals at the Auckland Town Hall playing a cover of uh, the Mockers Forever Tuesday Morning. And Roll Misers, I think we did Johnny Be Good mm. for some reason. <laughs> um and a, and, and a Midnight Oil song as well. Um, and we thought our point of difference that would make us look cool it was that we all wore Paisley shirts. Remember when Paisley yeah, shirts yeah. was a thing? Yeah. So we thought, that's us. That, so we all wore Paisley shirts. We called ourselves Felicity's Breakfast and we played um, we played the Mockers. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go off on a tangent. This is what I normally do anyway, go off on tangents. But it, it struck me when I was obviously doing a bit of research before the interview, it just, just something came to mind. I thought, how do they come up with names for bands? And totally right. And you just, you, you know, Felicity's Breakfast. I hadn't heard of that. Yeah. But you just reminded me of that thought. So I'm going to ask the question: How do you come up with these names? I don't know. I don't know who <laughs> came up. I think it wasn't me that came up with Felicity's Breakfast. Um, it sounded zany, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we stuck with it. Um, but you're exactly right. Band names are quite ridiculous. Uh, the one that sticks out for me is the Smashing Pumpkins. Like, you know, and but what it is is no matter how ridiculous the name, it just becomes what it is and becomes associated yeah. with that sound and that brand. Yeah. So it becomes normal. Yeah. Like if I said to you, I'm starting a band, we're calling ourselves the Smashing Pumpkins, you'd be like, you what? <laughs> we're, or, or the Foo Fighters. Yeah. What's a Foo, what's a foo Fighter? <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like... It's ridiculous, yeah. but of course it it's it just becomes what it is, yeah. and and actually the like supergroove has become what it is in in the sort of iconography of New Zealand music, and uh, when Carl first put that forward as the name for the band, so we were the low down dirty blues band. Essentially, we started to 
sort of write more funk original songs. And so the the moniker of the Lowdown Dirty Blues Band didn't really fit anymore. Mm. And so I'm pretty sure it was Carl came up with um, uh, Supergroup. And I thought it was the most ridiculous name ever. Supergroup. But it, like, ca- it kind of fits now though, doesn't it? It fits it, now. But at the time that sounded super lame. Like to me, <laughs> I was like, super groove? Like, hey, what's up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it sounded really try hard. And I was like, wow, okay, we're going with that. Um, but, you know, it very quickly became what it was. And yeah. and now it just seems very normal. Yeah, yeah. But I remember my distinctly my reaction at the time was like, bro. <laughs> yeah. So when, so when can I ask you, when did it start to feel like you weren't just in a band as in with a group of mates um, knocking out tunes to actually we're, we're going somewhere. This is the thing. We're going somewhere. When did that start to kind of sink into you? Um, so it was when we had made the tra- transition to become super group. So we started doing covers. There was all jazz and, well, not jazz, blues covers. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And then we would gradually do more sort of funky versions of those and there'd be some James Brownie stuff in there and we were starting to be influenced by the things we were listening to, which was a lot of uh, 70s um, parliament, funkadelic, all that sort of stuff, um, you know, with the bass lines and the horn section stuff. And the Red Hot Chili Peppers were coming through at that point. Mm. Early Beastie Boys were coming through at that point. And um, so that amalgam of those sounds sort of really influenced where we were going with um, with the music and the sound. And so once we uh, – so, so we had gained this, uh, I guess, a bit of press because we were the, the little kids who were playing the blues music. Mm-hmm. But when we started doing our own stuff, then we started to appeal to – and we were starting to become of an age that we could play – to people that were either our own age or still tended to be slightly older because they we were still young enough that we weren't 18 at that point. <laughs> but um, So we would start to play in high schools and we would do underage shows and we'd, we'd appeal to a younger audience, um, people who were growing up listening to the same sort of music that we were into. Um, and that's when it started to create some momentum and you got this, that buzz, you know, collective buzz where you sort of think – we're onto something that what we're doing is mm. is pretty cool, you know. Um, yeah. Not just from a response point of view, but like from from people responding to it. But just we loved it, you know. We yeah. were in a room together just playing this music. Like this is awesome, you know. Um, yeah. I'm gonna, so how old were you there? So I was fourteen when I joined Supergroup. I was nineteen, eighteen, nineteen when I left Supergroup. So yeah. it's like a pretty intense four and a half, five years. Yeah. Um, so you think of that, you know, being 14 to, mm. to 18 and a half, 19 is, um, pretty formative years for a teenager. Yeah. So, so, and, and, and it got, you know, once it started to gain traction, um, it, uh, it was pretty thick and fast, you know, um, yeah. it was pretty intense. Yeah. Um, and what were the impacts of that on your, on the rest of your life? If you like, you were obviously doing stuff, something you loved mm-hmm. and really enjoyed, which was great, but what about school and Family life and um, everything else. So it, they were just happening around it, you know. So it's like yeah. anybody who has a has a pursuit, you know. If if you're you're good at badminton or you're good at something else, you know, your extracurricular activity, if it's something that is 
you're doing well and you're going to put more time into it. And that's what it was for me. And and so I was still going to school and still uh, doing all that stuff. I guess it did get to a point where, so I, I didn't do seventh form, which I guess is year 13 now. I finished at the end of what for me was sixth form. So I didn't get uh, university entrance, they called it. Mm. Um, and I left and took a job working in a confectionery warehouse as a storeman driving a forklift and packing lollies right. uh, because it gave me the freedom to um, go in and out of the music stuff. So we were, you know, we, we might be on tour for like two or three weeks yeah. and, and my boss at the time was open to that. So it was yeah. cool. Like I could, I, you know, I could go to my rehearsals, I could take on a show and we could do this stuff and, and if I was away for a few weeks it was fine and then I'd come back, jump on forklift, you know. Yeah. Yeah, we were kind of, you know, you look at where things are at now with, uh, so this is all pre YouTube, Facebook, Instagram stuff. Mm -hmm. So for you to have a presence and build some momentum, it was organic on the ground stuff. So doing it the hard way. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's as easy to say that, you know, I did all the hard yards, but it it is. It's you're in the white van and you're traveling around the petrol station pies and you're yeah. and you're sleeping on the floor with your sleeping bag and you know sometimes we were sleeping uh, in the mezzanine above the venue somewhere mm. um but we were young and it didn't didn't matter we were just full of enthusiasm and yeah. you know we were we were not making any money we were just out there busy as anything uh and slowly building an audience so we, we toured quite relentlessly um our manager at the time Stuart Broughton was uh, a genius. He, he he really took us as this group of young guys and uh, really gave us a um, uh, the idea of actually what it meant to put yourself out there as a as a brand supergroup. What did that mean? What does that look like? You know, who are you, who are you in this group of people? You know, what's your look? You know, what's your feel? How you know all that sort of stuff that that for us we we hadn't really thought through. And 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 he was a bit older than us. And was able to think that stuff through, and and he was very very much a pioneer. He was booking all these shows for us. We would play, like we were busy. We would do sort of three, sometimes four performances a day if we were on tour, because we would do this thing where we would go into the high school mm. of the town, um, and we would play a lunchtime concert, and then we would do an in-store performance on the street at the record store because obviously record stores were still a thing, right? Yeah. And so you'd put it out there where we're going to be at, you know, four o'clock, we're going to be playing outside this record store and we'd just try and make a ruckus. You know, you try and disturb the traffic and you're trying to get attention from, you know, from people playing outside the store and make a bit of noise. Um, and then we would do an evening show, but sometimes there'd be two evening shows because you might do an all-ages show early and then you would do an R18 show later. So, and then you pack up and you do it all again. Wow. Um, and we we just did this back to back and just built it up over a series of tours yeah. to the point where uh, there was this critical mass building. But it took time um, yeah. because you, you, you just had to be there. You just had to show up and open the doors and see who turned up. Whereas nowadays you hedge your bets, you've got you've got all your social media, you can get you can create your event, you can see how many people are coming beforehand, you can see all your pre-sales, you can do all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. It, yeah, it was very different back in those days. Um, and the first few times that we toured, 
it was ridiculous. Like we had, I remember distinctly a gig at a place called Level 42, which is upstairs in right. Timaru, up multiple flights of stairs. So we we were our own roadies. And so we had a truck, we had a, a, light, a lighting guy and a sound guy and a truck, but we did everything. So we, we'd carry everything in, we'd set it all up, we'd uh, get it all going, then we'd pack it all down either night, we'd load the truck and we'd move on to the next town. Um, and we did our first show in Timaru and there were more of us on stage than there were in the audience. Wow. So, you know, and and that's the reality of what it is. You know, we, we, you think of, of Supergroove in terms of where they are in people's memories today. And, but the first time we played there, you know, we remember, I remember us all looking out going, this is, but we didn't care at that point. We, you know, we, we're still it's just young and we're enthusiastic and it's like, cool, let's go, you know. Um, and we were, uh, and, and this is another, another thing that probably, we talked about, you know, putting yourself on the other side. What would it feel like if you get over those obstacles? And, you know, so rather than looking out and seeing an empty room, we just looked internally to ourselves and saw seven people on stage that loved being together and creating this music. And so we just put on the show like there was 6,000 people there wow. every night, you know, and, and that's something that, I still do as a musician now. Um, I I very much give one hundred and ten percent with anything I do, regardless of who's there or not. Um, and and I learnt that from playing in places where there was nobody there. <laughs> yeah, 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 there's so much in that. Where not everything you just said, Paul. I'm, I'm just going to try and go through. Oh, unpack, so, dude. Yeah, yeah. Because I, you know, I've read that Supergroove were uh, one of the hardest working bands in New Zealand uh, music industry, and you've just described that. We were, yeah. Mm. Um, and, and obviously at that time, that was the way and the difference. You know, you talked about your manager being a genius and working out what you needed to do to get that presence yep. in the market, and then you guys had to go do the hard yards in order to do it. I mean, it's not like – and I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from um, anyone who has success on, on online mm-hmm. um, and builds that way. That's just the way things are now. But yep. to, to get – a market for people to hear your songs you have to go to them <laughs> totally yeah, yeah. Um, or get them to go to a record store to buy yep. it um not just download it um and if you were lucky get on on radio back then yeah yeah um which again at that in that era was much harder to do like now we have a, a much greater percentage and appreciation of local new zealand music on the air, mm. and that's a big thanks to organisations like New Zealand on the air who have worked for years just mm. uh, promoting New Zealand music on the airwaves. Um, but back then, you know, there was only a handful of bands that would actually get their songs played on the radio. Yeah. You know, there's a hell of a lot of gigs and all this great energy coming from the grassroots, just people being in physical places, experiencing moments in time. Mm. And if you were there, more power to you, you know. Mm. And and in some ways that was because you, you couldn't share this stuff, you couldn't be filming it and putting it out to your mates, mm. doing anything. It created all of these um, uh, sort of iconic moments for people that were you at that gig where, you know, there was she had it power station was here like a hole it's all you know mm-hmm. and and 
there were these legendary moments, you know, and, and you were either there or it didn't happen for you. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty cool to think that, you know, I, I was able to be part of a lot of those organic moments that happened, you yeah. know, and that's what music is. It's just about creating a, a moment, you know, that's what performing is, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, nowadays we're, we're trying to capitalise and, and make the most out of every moment that we can we're trying to replicate it and share it and but it's the same thing as you know you go on holiday and you take a photo of that cool sunset and then you look back at your picture and it's like that's it's not the it's not the real deal you know yeah, um yeah. but it reminds you of a moment yeah, you know yeah. so i still think that it's nicer to be a part of the thing as it happens if you can you know that's yeah. where the real buzz is you know not just seeing stuff or liking stuff. And, yeah. You know. So face to face, actually experiencing it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. What What did you? So, you, you know, you you were a young a teenager at mm -hmm. this stage, uh, youngest in the band. Um, and everything you've just talked about, like I say, is packed full of uh, of really insightful things. But what what did you? What were you learning from that? That you took forward in your life from that experience. Um. How to how to perform for one thing, how to put on a good show, um, how to how to I, I guess it sound sounds weird, but how to how to hold hold yourself in public. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You know, like how how it's not it's not like a projection, but just how to how to comfortably be yourself when people are looking at you. Maybe, yeah. you know, yeah. Um, yeah, that that because again, you know, the the pretty formative years, and so to have, mm. you know, people taking photos of you or a camera in your face or, you know, making a music video and doing mm. like I look back at Jeepers, so and and it, it now I think about it, I think yes, it did teach me how to perform because you look back at early Supergroove music videos. And I'm I'm so self conscious, so overtly <laughs> self conscious. You know, um, I, I'm so aware that the camera is there looking at me, and I'm trying to perform, you know, and do my thing. Um, and and you learn over time that actually you, you just ignore that stuff, and, and you just you are in in the moment. And that's what that's probably a big thing of what it's what it's taught me as well is is being present in that moment and making the most of of that moment, you know, rather than trying to think about all the ramifications of that moment, mm. just being my best self in that space, in the now, yeah. and then, and then everything else mm. fits around that, you know. Because if otherwise, if you're trying to anticipate, what do I, what do I look like? How does this, how does this mm. sound? How am I gonna, you know, what are people gonna think? Mm. All that sort of stuff. You, you'll your second guess, your, or you, there's a lot of things in your thought process that are coming in that are muddying the waters in terms of you just capitalising on that space where you are in that moment, making the most of it. Mm. Um, yeah. So Supergroove, like you said, really successful band. Yeah. Um, you, I read that you um, were uh, one of the New Zealand's best drummers. 
that's a pretty subjective opinion, you know. Well, <laughs> I it's, think it's, it's someone else's opinion, right? And so you yeah, know, yeah. I, I picked up on that, and I thought, well, you know, you were in that band at a fairly young age, and yeah. you, you've told us today that it was your uh, drum teacher that put you in touch with it. Did you? What was the learning journey like? How did you grow from that? You know, rather than sort of uh, just keep doing what you've always done. Was that during that time you were obviously growing as a as a person, mm-hmm. uh, growing with age as a drummer? Yep. How were you kind of perfecting your craft? So I was lucky. So I, from a music point of view, uh, I was lucky that I got involved in a band really young. Like, so what typically tends to happen, and and I think nowadays people probably are getting involved in music a lot younger because the technology is there and, and the inspiration is there. And so that's probably uh, probably happening now. But when I was growing up, as I say, we were quite young doing what we were doing. And most people who were drummers who were studying their craft were playing along to other people's styles. Like you're, you're, you're putting your headphones on, you're playing along to the music because you don't have an outlet, you know, uh, yet. And so by the time a lot of people get to that point where they have the outlet with the band, they've spent a lot of time modelling themselves off a lot of different players and taking on all those influences, whereas I didn't have the time to do that. I, I was in a band and was – so so I, in that sense I got to develop myself mm. without uh, too much of the technical – comparison with everyone else so you know and and I think about my journey and some some other players coming along at the same time a lot of their time was spent going through modern drummer magazines and and trying to learn that lick or trying to learn this phrase and you know uh, can can you play Rosanna by Jeff Picaro from Toto or something you know or could you play um, Messages in the Bottle like Stuart Copeland plays Messages in the Bottle you know all these things um Whereas I, you know, I was just out doing my band thing, and so in that sense, I think I did get to potentially develop a sound which was more my own because I was less influenced by what was happening in the big wide world. Mm-hmm. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've often thought because I, I, I like the, you know, the, the beat of the drums, and I'm a tapper myself. Right? I've never played drums, but uh, so I've always been a never too late. Always been a tapper, and. Um, but you know, do you, do you think do drummers get a bad rap? As in, you know, like they're they're at the back of the band, right? But I can't help feeling I don't know whether it's just I pay more attention to it or not. But when people are sitting and they're moving, they're moving to the beat of the drum, right? Mm-hmm. It's such an important part. But then you're not the you're not up front. You're not the yeah. You know, the the lead vocalist or whatever, or lead guitarist that gets the exposure at the back of the band. What's what's that like? Is that is does that bother? Drummers or no, it's awesome because well, I mean, so for some people, if if they have a particular ego that wants to be a star mm. in that sense and be recognised in that way, then it might be a problem for them. But I, I, it was really positive for me, you know. Being and I would say this for most bands, like if you think of, um, uh. Well, okay, so Foo Fighters is a bad example because Taylor Hawkins and everyone knows who Taylor Hawkins is. But you think of a lot of bands, um, can you name their drummer? No. Or if you if you were 
if they were walking down the street, would you recognize mm. and think, oh, my gosh, that's the drummer from Radiohead? Probably not. No. But you absolutely know who the lead singer is, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, to me, is a great thing. That's a good thing. thing. You know, you get, yeah, you get the else. anonymity <laughs> and, you know, so, so someone's shining a light somewhere else, yeah. you know, on, yeah. on the front person and you just get to do all the stuff that you do yeah. without – uh, without yeah having too much too much in your face, which yeah. is great, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, cool. Very so no good. problem, no problem for me. Yeah, okay. So, um, your time with Supergroove was that? What, did that come to an end in '94? Am I right? Yes. Yeah. 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 So, can you talk to us about that? What was the, you know, how how did that come about? You leaving the band. So that was interesting and, and in hindsight, pretty awkward situation. Um, so as I mentioned, I grew up in the church. And so at the same time, you know, again, these are really formative years. You know, I'm 14 through to, to 19. And um, so at the same time as I'm, you know, on this trajectory with the band and we're getting this bigger success, I'm at the same time uh, was still quite involved in the church and, and my own spiritual journey was becoming increasingly more important to me as well you know that's an age where you're you are trying to make sense of all of those gray areas and you're trying to think about what your values are and what your worldview is and and so to me I was working through that and obviously was very informed by the fact that I had grown up with that um, sort of Judeo-Christian worldview you know so it's undoubtedly is, is affecting my um, the way that I viewed myself and the world around me um, and uh, it got to a point where the more success that we got with the band, uh, not all, but some some of the band members became quite worried about the fact that I was uh, in the church and that, that the, there could be a perception that because I was a Christian that people might think that Supergroup was a Christian band. Um, and there was, to my mind, it was uh, sort of unnecessary uh, paranoia a little bit. You know, I thought it, I thought it was a bit much. Um, uh, but that was the view. And I, I remember, it, you know, that having these discussions around making sure that I didn't advertise anything around my spirituality, that I just sort of keep that uh, sort of hidden away so that it didn't affect the image of the band. Um, and I remember I was given a, um, a necklace by my parents and it had a cross on it. Um, you know, it's a very stereotypical thing. Mm. Uh, and, you know, for me it meant a lot because I was away from home a lot and we're doing all this stuff. And for them, for me it was like a connection to them and a connection to my, my faith at that time. And so, uh, you know, I would wear this cross. Um, and I remember a particular band meeting of them saying, you know, we don't want you to wear that cross anymore because – people might see it and they might think that, you know, you're a Christian, they might think that we're a Christian band. And that, you know, to me, the, the making that kind of leap didn't make sense to me, you know. Um, and in hindsight, I think they would probably ag agree, you know. There was, um, uh, there, there was a lot a lot of the, the more that that success became on the horizon, the more um, protective around that process they became and so uh 
that that started to create this division there where I was very aware that I, I felt put in a corner a little bit there as well. Um, and so I guess to the problem is I, I you know we're all pretty young and in, in hindsight by the way this is all is all water under the bridge you know we've had I, I have a good relationship with those guys and you know we've we've been able to make our peace around all that stuff we were kids at this time you know um, but you know at the time I, I I felt like there was a sort of division happening there and and of course when we started as a band we were kids and we were writing songs like. Uh, come to the party and um, hot jam donut and we had a song called bacon steak cheese and egg with a patty which was a reference <laughs> to the um, impressive burger that um, uh, the guy the takeaways would do that was just up from where we rehearse <laughs> and so we, 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 we're kids and we haven't had any life experience so we're writing about things that we can think of you know mm. um, and as the guys got older they were wanting to write about more interesting and deeper things and be a bit more angsty and all this sort of stuff, you know, which is fair enough. Um, but I guess because there was that division that was created, I, I I wanted to push back and say, well, actually, I'm not comfortable about playing this particular song, for example, because, you know, it's got this lyric in it that I'm not happy with. Um, you know, there was a song, ironically, called, uh, it was called Sex Police, and it was, it's a song about censorship. Right. And so, ironically, I was wanting to censor the song about censorship um, because the chorus says, "You know, sex police stick 'em up, motherfucker." Right. And and you know, I was, you know, we're doing it at these shows, and of course, it's just a rallying cry for the audience. It's like stick 'em up, motherfucker. Yeah. You know, and you know, hindsight's brilliant. Um, but you know, me as this kind of, I, I guess I, we talk about this idea of this inner confidence and this stuff that I was uh, feeling that, you know, in, in hindsight I was imbued with. But at the time I, I was quite nervous about my, this dual role that I felt I had because I felt this, you know, I loved being in this band. I loved that energy. I loved that feedback. At the same time I felt that I had some sort of responsibility because I was this young guy sort of on a, on a, on a bit more of a pedestal that was, in this church community as well. Mm. And so I felt that people were looking at me as an example of that. And so for me, I thought, um, am I being a good example of that by performing these songs, you know? Right. Um, and so, you know, I said I wasn't wasn't comfortable about doing that, you know? And ultimately it came to a standoff because we're getting closer to releasing the debut album. And um, uh, it was basically like, Reality is, you know, we're going to write a bunch more of these kind of songs and you're either in or you're out, you know. Um, and at the time it was a big thing because, you know, we had done all that groundwork that we talked about, you know, and that critical mass was there but it had not eventuated yet. We didn't see the, you know, we weren't number one yet at this point. Um, but everything was working towards that point where, you know, by the time the album came out we knew that, it was going to be a smash and we knew that this was going to be the biggest band in the country. And so, and not only that, because we were with the record company at the time, you know, there's all that talk around that stuff as well. You know, there's like, oh, this is great. And if you guys do this then we're going to take it to Australia and then the American guys are watching because if you make it in Australia, then they're going to take you to the States and they're going to do all this stuff. And so, you know, in, in hindsight, this is all chatter, but you know, as, as a teenage kid, you're like, 
this is stars in your eyes kind of stuff, you know, and I'm looking at all this potential here and seeing this pathway there, but at the same time feeling like some of the values that were, were very important to me at the time were, were being compromised to achieve that goal. Um, and the decision to leave the band came down to uh, essentially a 24-hour ultimatum because we had artwork due on the album and we were shooting a music video for a song called Sitting Inside My Head. And so the deal was you need to make a choice whether you're in or out because we need to get this artwork finished and we're making this video. So basically if you're not in, <laughs> we need to make this, you know, we'll, we'll change the artwork to suit and we're shooting this video so we need to know how many shots you're going to be in or not in basically was the feeling I got um, and I remember distinctly my parents were away overseas at the time and I was at home sort of agonising over this decision overnight so I had you know I sort of worked all these years to get to this point and now I was sort of sitting there thinking right what do, what do I do here you know I'm in a situation where I see this potential but then I, I have there, there's some of the values that I have that are not aligned with the values of where these guys are um, and uh, and so I made the decision to to leave um, and and so if you look at the sitting inside my head video there's no close-up shots of me in the video it's it's um, you only see me from from a distance um, and if you look at the artwork of the Traction album, it is all a bit muted because it's an interesting art, artwork, but I'm the one that you cannot see my head at all. And so essentially, it, it, you know, at that time it was hard because it felt a little hurtful, you know, because I, I felt like I'd invested a lot of that time and it felt like there was not a value of me enough to 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 want to find a happy medium. Um and so, so at that time, it was tough. But I made the decision based on, I guess, a, a principled decision, which the reason I talk about in such an elongated way is that time for me, looking back on it, is one of the most crucial things in my life in terms of becoming a cornerstone of how I choose to make decisions about my future because I always want to make value-based decisions that uphold the things that I think are important versus chasing a carrot that is potentially going to give me some sort of um, critical or monetary or some sort of gain. Uh, and I learnt a really valuable lesson, which I have to thank those guys for because I wouldn't have, wouldn't have been in that position to make that choice. And I struggled to make it at the time. But having made it, I think that put, you know, has set me up to make much better choices for my own future. Ironically, I'm not uh, particularly religious now. I'm not involved in the church. Um, I would quite happily play those songs, <laughs> you know. But so, but that that is almost an aside. It, it became the principle of you know what's what are the values that I have, and if those values are not compatible with the thing that I'm wanting to chase, then then that doesn't work for me. Doesn't matter what the stakes are. So the stakes could be 
you, you offer me anything and it's like well nah basically so yeah try and stick with stick to your guns in terms of what you feel is important for yourself in that moment wow I, I think you know you were what 18 19 say, something yeah like that. yeah yeah your parents are away you know at that age well at any age let's be honest that's all you know tap into my parents now for what what I should do and what I shouldn't do. Um, yep. You know, making that kind of decision back then at that that time was huge. Yeah, I was lucky. You know, I talk about um, the gentleman, Duncan Miller, who was quite an influence with me growing up in music in the church. I phoned Duncan that night. Um, so I had overnight to make this choice and I rung him and I think I was in tears and was just like, I don't know what to do here. Um and of course, he, he was great. He didn't tell me what to do. He just said, look, I just encourage you to be yourself, stand, you know, do do what you feel is right. It's all good. You know, I'm there for you and whatever happens. But, um, you know, that, that was like a father figure role to me at that time and was really important. That gave me, again, it wasn't directive, but I just felt like I had somebody in my corner that believed in me regardless of what was going to happen. And that was his message, you know was it doesn't matter what you choose, you know, I'm, I'm here for you anyway. Um, and that gave me the confidence to say, yeah, all right, no, this is good, you know. Um, but it was interesting. So practically I made that choice, but because we were on the threshold of releasing the record, nobody else was able to know that choice because we had an album to put out and the album tour to come. And so I had made the decision to leave the band, but then for all intents and purposes I was still – drummer in that band yeah. when the album came out and it shipped platinum and was number one and did all that stuff and then we have a sellout you know tour around the country and I was did the first couple of legs of that tour as well um because you know of course I couldn't leave didn't want to leave them in the lurch either and and yeah. so I was like right this we'll, we'll work this through until you find somebody new and um and so that was hard because, you know, you're going to these press events and you're going to these launches and someone's turning up and doing the whole thing, you know, presenting you with a, a platinum disc from the, you know, from BMG Records. And 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 I'm like, cool, thanks. <laughs> and they don't know. Well, you know, most of them didn't know that I w was leaving and, and for all intents and purposes had left. Um, so that was hard. And I was also sitting on the edge of um, uh, an endorsement from a, from a drum manufacturer as well. So uh, this company called Pearl Drums and, um, uh, you know, word had got back that, you know, we, we had enough leverage, enough stuff that they were like, cool, you know, we're going to give you a, an endorsement with Pearl. And, and I remember it was like a few days later, it was a week or something, and, and one of the guys involved um, sort of bound it up, had no idea, of course, and was like, oh, congratulations, so exciting, man. You're going to be, you got this pill endorsement. That's cool, man. And can't wait for that to come through. And it's like, cool, yeah, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. You don't know, but that's not happening. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if I detected, you know, this is obviously going back a little little while now, mm -hmm. not too long, but uh, detected a, maybe a little bit of emotion when you were talking about, about that. I mean, is it still something that you think about? Is it, do you have any regrets about that? I mean, I'll, I'll give you the context of why I'm thinking here, really. I mean, for me, it sounded like um, 
at that moment, you worked out how to live a life, a values-based life. Yeah. You, that was a lesson from that. Yeah. But as you said, you know, your opinion on those songs and religion and things like that change as, as you know, as things do for all of us. But so do you look back on that time and think I made the wrong decision or the right decision? No, I think it played out the way that it should have played out, you know, and it's hard to say that, you know, I don't know if you subscribe to the fact that everything happens for a reason sort of stuff but um it i'm i'm glad looking back on it that it happened um because it certainly you know it really makes you question inner reasons for why you're doing what you're doing and what's important to you you know what's the thing what are you going to say is most important you know what are you in the scale of things um and so i i really and the reason I, I guess it is an emotional thing for me is that it was such a pivotal thing at that age mm. for me to learn that lesson and although it was difficult at the time i'm super glad that i did learn that lesson because that that principle has been applied in a number of situations since, you know, where I I tried to make decisions about whatever based on what's important to me, not not overvaluing what the potential gain is, if the material gain, you know. Um, yeah. You also pick up on the fact that you were expressed gratitude to the rest of the band for that opportunity to make that decision that's mm -hmm. what you said earlier yeah um at the time I wouldn't have you know th this is an hindsight thinking about yeah. that you know um and as I say we're, we were all young at that point and and as much as uh I would say that most of the band at that time were probably overprotective around something that they were valuing and seeing as something going forward um I was also fairly naive and, and not able to articulate my own position in a very strong way, you know. Um, and, you know, as, a, as, a, as an adult, now I can look back on it and probably articulate it in a way that frames it better for me. But um, at the time it was still, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, it's, it's always a thing of looking back, isn't it? You were able to make it make it seem like it was always meant to be that way. But at the time, it was it was confusing and a bit difficult and awkward, mm -hmm. and there were awkward conversations and and all that stuff happened. Mm -hmm. um, but in looking back on it, I I am really grateful for what it was and what it's what it's meant for me going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those they're they're great guys, you know they are. That's the thing. Um, and I've had the opportunity to work with them in different with some of them in different contexts. Um, since you know, as a, as a musician, and um, Joe, the bass player, for example, did uh, a couple of our music videos when um, I was in a band called Eight, um, mm. and so we've had our opportunities to sort of reconnect and and put all that water under the bridge, and mm. it's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I was going to say it's not like that. That was uh, the, the end of a music career. It's the start of one, really. It was a start you of went, one. You went yep. on to other things. Um, and do other things in your own right with other people. Um, you mentioned eight. 
So yep. that, that comes straight after Supergroup? Or? No, there's a period of time after that. So the beauty of New Zealand is at that time in particular, there was only a few degrees of separation, you know. So having that platform that Supergroup gave me got me introduced to that inner circle of, mm. of other people. Um, I was very tight with um, with Shay, Shay Fu, um, through the Supergroup years. Mm. Um, he and I were... Um, sort of band of brothers through those years, and so when, so he he gave me a call a few years later to sort of come and work with him on on his stuff, and so I did a, um, a couple of albums with him and was touring with his band the Crates for a number of years, um, and this you know he he went on to you know be a number one artist in his own right after he had left the band, and and so I was able to to kind of ride his coattails in a way, you know his that. That band um, uh, was very successful, you know. Uh, we, the Navigator album was, you know, an award-winning record and lots of great singles off that. And so so I, I was back in that situation of, of uh, performing and touring at a, at a pretty high level um, and uh, then uh, got involved in, in Eight, which is a long-time friend of mine, Bruce, and I, um, had sort of started that project and, and we had some other mates around us with that. Um, and at the same time, so there was a, a period where I was doing a few projects and was wearing multiple hats. So music had become my thing by this point. So I was uh, either teaching or I was in the studio or I was on the road um, gigging. Um, and that was that was my working life um, for a number of years. Uh, and so I worked with Shay. We had Eight going on. I did a bunch of stuff with um, Anika Moore in her early days um, developing as an artist and touring her first record and did a similar thing with Brooke Fraser when she was first coming out as well So um, and did a few performances with her too um, and recording there's a studio called York Street in Parnell which is um, uh, you know fairly well known was the studio of the day back in, in the days you know that's where uh, you'd have the feelers and she had and super group and, and all that stuff was recorded uh, there. And so I was the one of the, the sort of on-call guys to come in and do commercial work there. Right. So I was just, you know, for a number of years there, I would just had my hat on juggling different stuff. Yeah. And, and so I guess that was in terms of my uh, career as a session musician uh, in New Zealand. If, if you can, I, I want to... Maybe jump forward a little bit. I'm not quite sure when. It's, I think is it mid to late 2000s that you um, were in Stomp. In yes. West End? Yep. Yep. Can late you tell 2000s. us a little bit because I think that's quite an interesting story about how you yep. ended up in in Stomp and in the West End in London. Yep. So we basically uh, we had done an album with eight, and so we were sitting looking at what was next for us and. Um, and we decided actually we 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 were going down this road of of sort of almost starting to cookie cutter and 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 preempt what we thought people were wanting to hear for the next kind of batch of songs and it didn't feel right it didn't you know it didn't feel like we were being us and so we thought actually let's let's call it you know again this is another thing it's like rather than chase this this commercial carrot or potential uh commercial success of, mm. of, of what that, that could be. It was like, what 
creatively was it achieving what we wanted it to achieve and and no it wasn't at that time so so we pulled the pin on that and and then my wife and I were sitting here thinking right what do we what do we do now you know um and I was as I say probably uh was in a position where it was as good as I was going to get as far as New Zealand was concerned um and so we thought let's try our luck in the UK and I had a bit of a contact with um uh through a guy called Daniel Beddingfield. Um, I did a bit of uh, recording with him. Mm-hmm. And so he uh, had taken me over to do a bit of recording over there. And so I was like, okay, well, I can I can scout out a place for us to stay. I was there for maybe a few weeks. And so, you know, I scouted out a place for us to stay. And then through that contact, I got a, um, uh, I got a gig through uh, with a lady called Lucy Silvers, who not a lot of people will have heard of potentially in New Zealand, but um, in Europe at that time and particularly in uh in holland she was like a number one artist in holland and spain mm. um and so we went over to UK, the uk with a couple of these things you know sort of thinking right we'll just do it we had our 18 month daughter zoe who's the bass player in the band now she's 18 she was 18 months at that time and so we kind of left with a couple of things to do not a lot else and just sort of turned up and we're like right let's go um, we had a couple of friends move over at the same time, so we were sharing a house in um, southeast London at the time, and um, and uh, you know I was quite spoiled. My very first gig in the UK and Europe was um, playing to uh, sold out Heineken Music Hall with five thousand people in Holland with Lucy Silvers. That was my first ever show. <laughs> in, in Europe um, and you know so you, you're on a tour bus and you're going and you're doing this and I'm like well, this is pretty cool you know yeah, yeah. Um, and and I was just filling in I was filling in because her drummer was was amazing and was doing stuff with I don't know some some other bands somewhere and so I that was a nice opportunity but then it, you know it's the highs and lows of anything with music you know you you come off a gig and then what are you going to do Tuesday through Friday and what other money do you have coming in you know and so I was hustling I was doing temp work here and there I was driving a billboard truck advertising investment properties in Dubai around Harrods Um, I was doing admin work for places and all sorts of stuff and I was doing what's called dipping where you cover for people who can't make gigs and so I was jumping in my car and driving for four hours to get to get to the south coast of the UK to play in the middle of some country manor for someone's wedding with a band that I met that afternoon, you know. Um, <laughs> and so I had a folder. I built up this folder of all these songs, frantically learning all these tunes so I could just be available and be that guy and just play. And so I was hustling, but but it was getting uh, – I wasn't getting any sort of real traction. You know, I had a couple of good things, um, but we had this run of – just bad luck. I had a, I was in a five car pile up on the way to a gig in Sherwood Forest. Right. You remember um, Centre Parks yep. in the UK? Mm-hmm. It's a holiday place, right? Yeah. And so we were booked to play with this band who I'd not met at this point. Um, and so I was, and it was up in Sherwood Forest. So I was driving with the guitarist. We had all our gear in the car. It was raining. You know, someone, we're coming out of a bit with road cones and someone just stopped and all of us. And so we had to literally get the car towed off the road, 
jump in a cab, go back, load all our gear into the cab, go back to our house where we were staying at the time, get his car, chuck stuff in his car, still make it to the gig <laughs> four and a half hours away or something. And so we, we were slightly late starting, but we made the gig. Um, and so that had happened. And then I was at another gig in central London and I had left all my electronics. It was, we were in a, in a bag, you know, my, my custom uh, in-ears and video camera and a little desk and some other stuff was all in this little bag. I'd left it on a train coming back from the gig, you know. Um, and then something else had happened. I'd missed out on a on auditioning for something. I, I went for an audition with the Waterboys, um, you know, Hole of the Moon, Waterboys, you know, like iconic kind of classic act. And I knew the drummer who was playing for them for some reason he couldn't do this tour and he was like you should do this tour you know and I'm going yeah totally I should do that tour <laughs> and um and so you know I kind of had this idea that you know he was kind of putting me forward for the job and so I was going to show up they sent me a few songs I was going to go show up and and just jam with these guys through these tunes um Actually, I turned up and and I was one of like fifteen drummers that were <laughs> auditioning that day. I didn't realize it was quite that. Um, and uh, I think I did pretty well, but for whatever reason, I didn't I didn't get that gig. You know, right. so that was quite disappointing. You know, okay, I'm back to driving the billboard truck or I'm doing whatever I'm doing. I'm hustling. You know, yeah. um, and so at the time, and actually, it was it was also a bit weird because, and I don't know if this is exactly the time. I might be misremembering the timing of these things, but there was also this talk of a supergroup reunion happening. This is years later, right? Mm. Um, and so we had been back and forth with this idea that, um, uh, you know, we're all adults now. This is great. We've got this chance. You know, it's been years. Let's get the band back together and we'll do this whole thing where everybody comes back and we're going to celebrate what supergroup was. And, that, mm. you know, it was cool. And basically for whatever reason, there was some some different politics involved and, and it just made – it meant that, that – that wasn't going to happen for me. Um, and so at the time, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there with a few things just going wrong mm. and we're running out of money at this point and I'm thinking, right, we probably need to think about going home to New Zealand. Mm. Um, and unbeknownst to me, my wife Michelle has signed me up quite early in the piece to the, to audition for Stomp. Stomp was one of the West End shows and I didn't know this. And so I got an email that said, um, oh, you know, you, you've uh, registered for these auditions and we've got these auditions happening in Brighton on these days and these days, you know, click here and let us know if you're coming. I'm like, what? Um, and sure enough, my wife is like, oh, yeah, that was me. You know, and this was ages <laughs> ago she had done this. Um, and so in my headspace, I was just like, what else is going to go wrong, you know, at this point? You know, I was feeling pretty low about, my potential at that stage and thinking, right, I've just got to, I'm going to go home with my tail between my legs. Mm. Didn't quite make it, but, you know, gave it a shot. And so I went into these auditions just thinking, fuck it, basically. You know, I'm going to give myself a day out because we're, you know, we're hustling in London. The auditions were in Brighton. I got to get on a train, drive, go down to Brighton and do these auditions. And so that was my attitude. I was like, you know, I'm just going to enjoy myself and have a fun day. Um, and... Lo and behold, you know, I got I got called back and then I got called back again and I got called back again and until we were down to this group of, you know, a um, handful of people. And uh, at that time, you know, it, 
I didn't realize the scale of it when I turned up on the first day. There was like, it was it was like an X, X or X Factor or Britain's Got Talent or something. Yeah. There was literally hundreds of people there, and and they'd come from all over Europe to be part of these auditions, you know. Yeah. And again, I think I was so tunnel visioned in my in where I was at that I hadn't really paid attention, really. And in some ways, I think it served me well because a lot of people were rehearsing things that they were working out to try and put forward, you know, to present themselves in the best light. And I was like, I haven't done my research yet. I, I don't know what's going on. I don't even know what they're going to ask me to do. I'm just here, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and in some ways I think that was quite good because I was pretty much an empty vessel and, and the way that they do the auditions for Stompers, it's open to anybody. You don't have to be a performer. You can just turn up and if you've got energy and enthusiasm and some talent, you could be in stomp. This is the thing, you know. Um, anybody can make music out of anything. Yeah. Uh, that's the ethos of what stomp is about. And so they would run these auditions as workshops, where you just have a bunch of people that put you in a group of like thirty or something. You get in a big semicircle. They'll mm. say, "All right, together we're going to do this sort of hand feet routines, and we're going to clap and you stomp your feet on this beat, you know, or we give you a, um, a pair of rubbish bin lids you put on your hands. What are you going to do with those? You know, how are you going to make some?" shapes and mm. you know what would you do just you know yeah. um and i was a fish out of water for the first couple of callbacks because there was no drumming it was all body percussion um dance related shapes moving stuff and so you know i was didn't know what i was doing and then i think it was the third callback they had these big blue oil drums and these hammer handles with stuff on the end mm. and they're like right, we've got the people making shapes here. I want you with the drumsticks. I want you to set up, play, play a beat, play something on these drums that these guys can jump around with. What would you do? And so there I'm like, yeah. now Sweet this spot. is my element. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I was able to, to lay down a few grooves and, and I, I felt comfortable in that. Um, long story short, it got down to 12 of us. And, and then they said, thanks for your time. Cool. We'll give you a call if we need you. And that was it. Um, and so I was like, cool, there's a few days of getting down to this stuff. And then I'm like, okay. And then I was back to, was back left, to hustling left, again. Left, left hanging. Yeah, yeah. They didn't say there was no guarantee of anything. You know, they're like, cool, thank you. And it wasn't till like a month later that I got uh, a call and they offered me um, a position to come and learn the show full time and pay me money to do it. Right. And it was like, and it was twice as much money as I was earning at the time for 40 hour week of hustling, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so pretty exciting. Yeah. And, and, you know, I just, it was full immersion down in Brighton and Hove, literally clock in, turn up at a warehouse, they come pick you up, go to your, go to this warehouse, which is the stomp uh, international sort of warehouse where they, had all the production stuff. They would make their brooms, make their hammer handles, do all the stuff, you know. They had this um, industrial little warehouse place and they had set, made a whole stomp set like the show inside this warehouse. So you turn up and you walk in and you're, it's like you're in the theatre, but you're in the middle of an industrial complex in the back, back of somewhere. Mm. And sort of nine to five, eight weeks, just learn the show, learn the parts and... Uh, the end of it, the last sort of couple of weeks, you were up in London in the theatre 
still rehearsing during the day. And then you would watch the shows in the evening. Mm. And um, and they do this every time apparently. But, you know, the classic thing is you do your rehearsal and then you're going to go watch the show in the evening. And then Luke, one of the creators of the show, turns around and says, right, you're going in tonight. And, and that's it. Wow. And you're in. Yeah. Um, and so of our group, I was the uh, I was the first to get put in the show. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think I made a hash of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, there were there were a few mistakes, few few big mistakes that um, you know, if you were an audience member, you probably wouldn't really pick up on. But you know, mm-hmm. my numbers were all over the place. I was just like <laughs> trying to keep up, trying to do my thing, but. So exciting, cheapest, and so supportive. You know, really cool. Like that is such a great company and cast to work for, because uh, what you're and it taught me so much about music. Because what you're doing is, I, I like I'm a drummer, so a drummer is kind of a bit of a mini orchestra in a way, because you're you're making these rhythms based on all these different sounds. Mm. Um, so Stomp is like taking a drummer and a conga player and a percussionist and putting them all together and creating these rhythms, but you're splitting those rhythms between eight different characters. So instead of where I'm used to playing, there's my kick, there's my snare, there's my hi-hat, so I'm playing, I'm making this beat myself, you know, based on these different sounds. Um, For stomp, your sound might just be the, or you might be the, and that, that's your part. So actually you've got, no matter how good you think you are at that bit that you're doing, if you're not in sync with the other seven people who are making up that groove, it's going to sound dumb, you know. Yeah. So that was the whole thing of it taught me so much about I, I hear music on a real macro level now. You know, it's like where you see those commercials where uh, it's like, you know, the inside engine of a car and then it goes, and you see all the component bits, you know, it's kind of like the matrix. You're, yeah. you're looking at it that way. So suddenly uh, underneath, under a microscope, you're examining what that one little bit of the beat is, you know, yeah. and that's where you're locked into. But then that needs to sit with that. And this person is also spinning when they do that. And then, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing yeah. because you have to work with that dynamic and become one as a, a group of people to create this movement yeah. and this energy. Yeah. Um, so as a musician and a drummer and a performer, what an opportunity. You know, it's amazing. Um, and, of course, what a way to throw you in the deep end too. You know, like you're just there. You don't You don't have any – I had no costume. I had no gear. You know, you're just there rehearsing for the afternoon thinking, cool, you know, I'm still doing my thing. And it's like shows at eight and this is like – I don't know, four o'clock in the afternoon, and Luke's points at me and says, Right, you're you're up. I'm like, <laughs> so I'm calling my wife and I'm like, hey, um, I'm not gonna be home because <laughs> because yeah. I'm I'm going on stage tonight. Yeah, this yeah. is crazy. Yeah. yeah. So I'm you're borrowing a costume and you're you're making it work. But of course they put the most experienced team of the rest of the performers around you and and they just carry you through that show. And, and then the rest is is what it was. You know, I, I managed to get a, a position with that cast in, in London and I did that full-time for eight years. Wow. Hmm? When you say full-time, 
how many shows a week? There's eight shows in a normal week. So you rotate around different roles that you have within the, mm. in the cast and there's 12 members in a company. So of, of those eight shows, you will usually do maybe six, six shows a week. Um, if you're lucky, you'd get like a five-show week, you know, um, which is amazing because you have like an extra night off. <laughs> um, if you're unlucky, someone's injured themselves and you do all eight shows. <laughs> and during holiday seasons, they put on extra shows, of course, because you've got more people coming into the West End. And so um, the challenge of that, you know, is I have a young family at this point. Every school holidays, every Christmas, every New Year, I'm doing it. It's 10 show weeks. You know, you, you the time when they have off, I'm busy, you know. Yeah. So that was the downside of, of that a bit. You know, we're kind of trading places. You know, the kids come back from school and then I'm off to work because it's yeah. evenings and weekends. So, so out of eight shows in a week, four of those shows are done across Saturday, Sunday. Mm. Um, yeah. And did you, am I right in saying that you did a tour? Did I did a couple come, of tours. Um, did you come to New Zealand? Yep, yeah. yep. So uh, me and uh, my mate Ian, uh, who, who, was, who was another young guy who came at the same time as me, Ian Vincent, um, younger than me, um, dancer, all-round legend guy, does everything, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he got in at the same time I did. So there was another Kiwi sort of um, uh, friend of mine that, that came in at that time. So um, we sort of put our hands up and pleaded to to be on this Australasian tour. Mm. And it worked well for the company because we did a lot of the press because we were local boys, you know. Mm. We'd come home and we we could do a lot of the press stuff and, and that was good. Um, so we toured uh, Australia and New Zealand for, was it, nine weeks or something, mm. um, which was amazing. Yeah. So I got to come home to New Zealand and, yeah. and perform at a show there, yeah. um, which is Great. I, there was a, an iconic venue called the Civic in Auckland mm. Theatre. And I grew up as a starry-eyed kid looking at the stars on the roof mm. in the Civic and the, the you know, all the ornate decorations and stuff. And it was just a magical place because um, it used to be a theatre back in the days. Um, and it was always a goal as a musician to play at the Civic. You know? And so to come home and be able to perform and lead that show, at that point I was... Um, you know, you have different characters in the show, and one of my principal characters was a character called Sarge, who is essentially uh, runs the show. It's not the star of the show because it's an ensemble piece, but but they are the leader of that show. They determine and make a lot of the decisions. They determine the pacing. They they are interacting with the crowd. They are essentially responsible for holding that show down. Um, and so that that obviously taught me a lot too. You know, you're in a um, a leadership role there, trying to pull all that together. How do you, you know, keep everybody motiva- motivated in a good way and 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 keep the energy and do all that sort of stuff. And and the same same principles would come through. Like you you you've the thing that always surprised me about the West End is you they run a show with eight shows a week. You know, you do that in New Zealand, two weeks in, everybody's seen it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I ne- I never understood how a show could just run. You know, but Stomp ran for over 25 years in London. Um, and so, but sometimes you'd have your low days where, you know, we were in a small auditorium that held about 400 people max, I think. And, you know, you'd get a matinee on a Thursday afternoon during a down season, you know, like after Christmas when everybody's back at work and everyone's spent their money, they're kind of done their holiday thing. 
uh, there'd be a bit of a lull in the in the West End scene. And, you know, I think the lowest amount of people we played to that we went out and there was like uh, and the company manager come up to us beforehand and said, like, just so you know, you know, we've sold like 60-something tickets to this show, you know. And it's like, mm. oh, okay, you're in an auditorium that holds 400 and, and you know, you're putting on a show and people have paid good money to see it. And but the same, that same principle I talked about with Supergroup back in the days, you know, at that time there was more of us on stage than there was in the audience, you know. It felt like that because we were in a room that was a hell of a lot bigger. Um and not only is it 60 people, but they're spread across an auditorium. So they're like in groups of twos and threes. And you're like, whew. And, and certainly as, as the Sarge character, you're the first one that walks out on stage. You know, you're sweeping the floor. You kind of do this. And then there's this whole acknowledgement, looking up and discovering that people are watching, you know. Um, and you're looking out at a whole lot of empty seats, you know. Um, but beforehand, you just you, you get everybody together and you're like, Right, this is it. When we might not get the energy we need from yeah. the audience, but we're going to find that energy within ourselves. We're going to keep our heads up. We're going to play to the back of the room, and uh, these people have paid good money to see this show. So we're going to play like this place is full, you know. Um, and 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 in some ways, those shows were the most energetic because you felt like you had to over deliver to. Con- to compensate for the fact that there weren't as many people. And it's almost like the audience felt that they needed to overcompensate because there weren't as many people too. So what tended to happen is the smaller crowds would make the most noise and you get the most connection because that everybody's in it to win it. Everybody's trying to create a moment and an experience. Um, And the opposite could be true. You could go out to a packed auditorium and you've sold the show out and – but it always takes an instigator sometimes, right? And so if you get a crowd that is instinctively not sure what to do, they might not make that that initial connection and noise. Mm. And so actually you could have uh, a full packed house and it's like you're squeezing blood out of a stone to try and get that that energy. You'd think it would be automatic, but it's not. You've got, you, you've got to earn it either way. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. So I want to ask you, Paul, because um, I, th- I think there might be a connection, but Stomp, I'm, I'm taking it was quite a physical role mm-hmm. um, from a fitness point of view, using your body to make music. Yeah, it's like going to the gym for two hours a day, really. Yeah. You know, it's cool. So was there, you know, you're now an osteopath. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I mean, you're back in a band again, but you're a, yeah. you're, a, you're yeah. an osteopath, successful practice. Um, you know, was was there a connect? Is there a connection between what you've done all your life in the music side of things and maybe Stomp and osteopathy? How did that come about? It's, it's a direct connection, basically. Um, I was on stage with Stomp, and you know, I came into it actually reasonably late in the piece compared to a lot of the um, the other people around me that had come in. I was in my 30s when I got that show. And so, yeah, you're jumping around on stage in steel cap boots. It takes a toll on your body. So um, I was getting a few aches and pains. Mm. And, and you know, it was like I, I have to manage that. Um, and I went to see an osteopath and um, 
I was really impressed with the the way that osteopathy looked at health and and the way that it valued uh, what health meant for me as an individual. You know, it's looking a bit more holistically at me as a person and what I was doing in my life that constituted how my body was going to respond to different things. Mm. Um, and so I, I thought that's a really cool way of of dealing with stuff. Yes, I'm getting, um, you know, they're working on the fact that my knee hurts, but they're trying to think about why my knee hurts in context to who I am as a person and, and you know, what my capacity for my knee not hurting is mm. based on who I am as a person as well. Mm. Um, and so that, you know, when I think about bigger principles of things, you know, from my background, that really struck me. You know, this wasn't like uh, um, just an engineering mechanical thing, like I'll give your knee a bit of a rub and you're good choice, see you later, you know. It was like, ah, no, what, is, what does health mean? What does that look like? What does that look like for you versus what it looks like for someone else? You know, mm -hmm. this knee is not the same knee that comes in on somebody different. You know, um, there's a lot of things around that. Um, and so I became quite fascinated with it. And because I was having to maintain myself and keep my own body working, it was like, what does it mean? What's that muscle cord? What is, why does my elbow hurt when I do that? And what's that bit there? And how do I stretch that? And so it was a natural kind of progression to, you know, the, I think the, the, the values and the, the ethos behind osteopathy attracted me mm. um, and also the mechanics of it were just relevant. <laughs> you know, yeah. It was like, how do I keep myself working on this stage? Yeah. Um, and so I, I was lucky it, because I was in a position where I say I was with Stomp full-time, but full-time meant, you know, probably 20-something hours a week of, of doing your shows, you know. Mm. So most of the time, you know, like my working day would start at, you know, you have to be on stage at 6 for a show that's at eight o'clock in the evening, you know. Mm -hmm. So you had a lot of time around that. And yeah. so I enrolled in an osteopathy course um, and thought, let me just, you know, I talked about it with, with my wife, Michelle, and uh, we thought, let's just give it a go. And we'll do the first year. We like it, good. Yeah. You know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. And then five and a half years later, you know, came out with a, a master's degree in osteopathy. And I, and I was doing the show concurrently the whole time. Right. So that it got pretty busy, as you can imagine, you know, <laughs> sort of juggling clinic hours and study and exams and running to a show and doing this stuff. It was pretty crazy. And so I have my, uh, my family to thank for that and my wife for the fact that, you know, she was essentially a solo mum while I was doing exams mm. and stuff because I was – you know, I'd be in the library, then I'd be off to a show, then I'd be trying to do my clinic hours to keep up with that because you have to do I don't know, something like over 2,500 hands-on clinic hours mm. across your time. And yeah. That was pretty crazy. And there was a lot of, you know, you're juggling a lot of plates, but we got there. Is that, is that, a, is that a pattern for Paul Russell's life? So, you know, a lot of balls in the air and a lot of plates spinning. And, you know, like, I mean, you, you seem to have, you know, even going back to the beginning, there was lots going on. You were you were in a band at school, and everything else was just happening around you. That's what you said. You know, it's yeah. like you seem to manage all of that quite quite well. Uh, I'd like to think there's not as many plates spinning now, um, but other people might disagree. You know, because <laughs> I, I guess I am in a band again now, and we're, yeah. we're we're making new music and we're putting that out there, and and so you know, my, 
one of my responsibilities with that is when you know we're not signed we just do this for ourselves and so um you know i i make video stuff i i manage the social media stuff and i kind of do a lot of the admin and organizing of that sort of thing so yeah that that takes a bit of time and then we're creating the music and we well we're writing the music and then we're recording the music and then putting it out so that's that's another Sounds thing busy. It's pretty. Yeah, actually, when I with a full say time, it like with that, a full time like, practice as well. What, what am I doing? But but I <laughs> I, I have structured my uh, time in a way that gives me at least some shot of achieving those things. So I my clinic runs from home. So we we've modified our our home to to have a clinic space there, and so I don't have to travel anywhere. It's nice. It's nice. Go out, put my sign out in the morning. People come to me, which is nice. And uh, and it's all separate from the house, which is nice. You know, I can walk down the hall, I walk into my clinic space, that's that hat on, you know, and then I can go into the house, which my, you know, is separate from where my patients come in and, and, and then I'm home again, you know. So there is a good separation from work and home life in that sense. Um, but I work four days a week. So I do Tuesday to Friday in the clinic and then Mondays is, is my music day. Right. Um, so I'm either you know, with my bandmate Bruce and we're writing the tunes or we're recording the stuff or I'm making a video or I'm doing some social stuff or I'm trying to organise things. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so it's it's good, you know, it's it's that it's the elusive elusive balance, ever elusive balance, shifting goalposts, isn't it? Where you want to find that work-life balance, you know. Mm. And I'm lucky that osteopathy for me even though it came you know it was a discovery that came out of what I was doing at the time is something that I'm equally passionate about now which is I think I'm in a fortunate category there you know that I had something that I loved and I was able to make that a career choice and now I have something else that I also have come to love that is now my career choice and the good thing is, and part of the motivation for pursuing osteopathy is I was getting older and thinking, okay, my lifespan as a performer, certainly on the stage, you know, um, and thinking about life, what life as a session musician means, you know, as a drummer, typically that's you are in a fixed place in time doing a thing and you get paid for that action. You know, there's not multiple revenue streams that are coming in, you know, passively, you know, mm. you need to be there. Johnny on the spot, you're either on the tour or you're in the studio, you're doing something. And what I didn't want is to be uh, that guy in my 50s thinking, right, I need to play that, I need to take that wedding gig or that corporate gig because this is how I make my money. You know, and, and that that definitely became something that as I was going through Stomp a few years into Stomp, I became aware that, right, okay, right, I'm, I'm in my mid to late 30s now, mm. you know. What is this going to look like in fifteen years, uh, and and what am I going to look like in fifteen years, <laughs> and how am I going to feel? You know, um, and certainly I wouldn't be jumping around in the West End stage anymore. Mm. There's a limited shelf life for that, and uh, yeah, as I say, I didn't didn't want mu- I didn't want to have to take the gig because I need the money. Yeah. I wanted to put myself in a position where music, which has been this thing that I love all my life. Uh, is something that I can choose to do because it fulfills a creative need for me mm. um, and I can express myself in that without feeling like I'm tied to it. Mm. Um, and so that was really important. And so I feel lucky mm. that I have my osteo clinic, 
which you know is is a um, a nice little practice. You know, it's just a, a one man band thing. Mm. But I'm I'm busy and I have you know a, a good regular amount of, of clients and and patients and I I really enjoy that work. But if I wasn't doing music, and this is the thing, I I I, I would struggle because you know you have to have that outlet creatively you know you can't just do music for all of your life and then go okay cool now I don't do that anymore um, mm. hang up my hat hang up my boots and and I do this other thing mm. you know that and and the too much of uh, of what we see in society kind of forces that issue a little bit people get married they have kids they get a mortgage and then suddenly all those pressures mount up and the creative thing that you did when you're younger is no longer tenable because you're too busy trying to make ends meet and manage your family and do all that stuff so I'm trying to find a way to to do both I'm not always doing I'm certainly not always doing that successfully because you know um you talk to my kids and they'll be saying oh you're making bloody video again (laughs) midwave breaks is the name of my band so um my kids like mocking me for that, um, for the amount of time that I still give to this creative pursuit, yeah. you know. Yeah. And and at some point I'll probably question that myself as well, you know. But um, I, I still love it and I, I love creating the music. Mm. Um, and me and my bandmate Bruce, we, we decided when we, for this project, when we got together, so we've been – I put our music out first in 2021. So we, it's not long. We're pretty mm-hmm. young in that sense um, of putting ourselves out there. But we wanted to, uh, certainly for the first batch of songs that we had, which we were envisaging as an album at that time, wanted to record the whole thing pretty much before we presented anything to anybody. Because what we didn't want to have was the situation we had in our previous band where we were trying to, second guess some sort of commercial imperative or some idea of what people might want to hear from us. Mm. Um, we just wanted our audience to be ourselves, you know. So we we sat down and discussed it first and we're like, yep, what's, what are we doing this for? Mm. Um, and ultimately we were doing it for us, yeah. you know. We were our own audience. Mm. The fact is, though, that... We're both reasonably accomplished musicians who are perfectionists at heart. And so even though we're doing our own side project for ourselves, we're doing it to the best that we can do it with the resources that we have. And so ultimately we end up creating something that we're really happy with and ultimately that we think actually we like it. There's probably a bunch of other people that are going to like it. Two, yep. so we should put it out, mm. and so that's where we're at. You know, we're just doing that piecemeal. We're just putting tunes out there, and we're seeing how it resonates with people. You know, um, and our audience is people like us. You know, it's mm. pretty retrospective. We're kind of, you know, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We've got, we kind of know where our lane is with with where our songwriting is and our sound, and it's pretty retrospective late 80s 90s kind of stuff that we do but 
oddly enough, there's a real resurgence of that kind of sound around and whether we've just tapped into the fact that timing-wise that seems to be happening now, um, whether it's a byproduct of the lockdown kind of stuff where you had all these all these people that had um, sort of put things on the back burner because they're, they're um, following their career pathways and doing all that stuff suddenly are sitting at home thinking, oh, I, I can do something creative with my time. You know, we had all this... The, the, the lockdown gave us all a chance to uh, readdress what it means to do what we're doing and why we're doing it. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think for whatever reason, we're, we're kind of t- tapping into that like everybody else. Mm. Um, I, I think I'm just going to pick up on you. You said reasonably accomplished musicians. I think you're very accomplished, very well accomplished. <laughs> I think, you know, what's interesting is... Um, where you're at now and you know you've you've been in really successful bands you've been in you've worked with some uh, superstars you've been in a west end show for eight years you've you know gained a master's in osteopathy and set up your own successful uh, practice you're now setting up uh, you know well not setting up but now establishing midwife breaks as, as a band you're a hall of famer music hall of famer um, it does sound pretty good. Yeah, right, it does, doesn't it? it? <laughs> right, but you know, so you know, and you know, think about the the age you're, the age that you're at. Um, what's next? Where where are you going? Where are you going to go next? I don't know. I think I think now I'm I'm probably, uh, you know, me doing my osteopathy degree was the furthest I had looked ahead. You know, to to embark on that, mm. you you know that it's going to be at least five years. Mm. You know. Mm. Um, to get to the end of that process. As a musician, you don't tend to look that far ahead because you're more project-based. You know, it's like mm. I'm getting to the end of an album, I'm getting to the end of a tour. Yeah. You know, and even with Stomp, you know, it, it's it's kind of like a seasonal thing. You're, you're, you're not thinking five years down the track, I'm still going to be doing this, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I haven't I, – I, I think I'm more, more in, a, in a moment now of uh, of being comfortable doing what I'm doing for a period of time as opposed to always shooting for something around the corner. You know, that's my life lesson is to try and be in the moment. Right. I talk about these things like they are the, the thing to encapsulate and, and that's the most important bit because it's so elusive to me. and And so that's why things like music and surfing are such important expressions for me because they are the things that put me in that moment mm. where I'm not thinking about anything except what's happening right then. You know, surfing is that way because, again, you're out of your element. You are constantly adjusting and in tune with the fact that you are not on your feet and you're trying to harness something which is way bigger than yourself. Um, and music you know when you are performing or recording and trying to capture something down uh, for posterity um, you're you're trying to get as much out of that as you can and you you are not thinking about anything else you know um, and so that's my greatest lesson and and anybody who knows me will will attest to that that my head is always and it's interesting you ask me this my head is usually always somewhere down the road. And I'm I'm living 
my life towards some arbitrary goal, wherever that may be. And um, I'm interested in 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 how uh, people look to the world around them and the people around them, mm. and that's what I see in people like Bono. What what we do is we'll with every guest is try and extract from the conversation some bullet points, if you like, some uh, wisdom. Good luck share. with that. How long have we been uh, talking? So I, I, I've, <laughs> got a, I've got a job on my hands there because there was so much within what you've, what you've um, spoken about. And so I really appreciate that. I appreciate you taking the time to be here, being open and sharing as much as you have. Uh, it's been fascinating. So thank you very much indeed for, for that, Paul. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I, I enjoy... Um, the process of of sharing that stuff, you know, it's helpful for me. It's nice to have a bit of a look back yeah. on why I feel the way I feel about things, yeah. um, how my journey has led me to the point that I am, and I find the same thing with my osteopathic patients as well. That when you start talking to somebody, you realise everybody's got a story, everybody's got something unique and interesting about their past yeah. that informs their present, and and you just need to listen and be in an environment where that that stuff can come out. And so I love that exchange. It's cool. Yeah. Awesome. I really enjoyed the interview with Paul Russell. Wasn't it great to gain some insight into what it takes to become a music hall of famer? Of course, we found out that Paul is so much more than a drummer in a band. Well, in several bands, actually. But what I mean is there are so many more facets to Paul. He really has lived a life that is a story worth retelling. One of the things I really like about Paul is you wouldn't know what he's done unless you accidentally happen to strike up the right conversation and some of his stories slip out. He's such a nice guy, down to earth and unassuming. I really enjoyed listening to his story and the valuable insights and wisdom he shared with us. And I know there'll be many more chapters to come. On that note, this segment of the podcast is about wisdom worth sharing. At the end of every interview, I'll look back as part of the editing process and discover some of the gems that came out in the conversation and summarize them here. From Paul's interview, I've drawn out about four main areas. There were lots more, but the four that I've chosen are having a positive mindset, facing your fears, living a values-based life, and finally, being in the moment. Early in the interview, Paul talked about learning to surf at a relatively old age, for surfing, that is, 19 or 20 he was. And this is something he's still enjoying today. But his reason for learning to surf was about facing his fears. And the way he chose to conquer his fear of both waves and sharks was to do something that would require him to become more than comfortable with both, surfing. When I asked why wouldn't he just avoid a sport that required more of, of him than any other to be exposed to sharks and waves, his response was that he saw it as a challenge. To be out of his element and to be at the mercy of the elements, and harnessing those to create a moment. Paul described looking ahead and visualizing what it would be like on the other side if he achieved this, gaining the composure to overcome the challenge. This seemed to be a theme in Paul's life. There's a label for this, equanimity, being calm and composed in difficult situations. Gaining composure and looking ahead to what might be on the other side has helped Paul deal with many scenarios that may have otherwise caused him to go off course. From performing in front of a small crowd, a smaller number than the band members on stage in the very early days, to very large crowds as a member of Supergroove, 
through to coping with things not going quite so well overseas and going for roles like he did in Stomp. Remaining equanimous has served Paul well, and I think there is a lesson there for all of us too. What's abundantly clear in the story of Paul's life's work was that he lives by his values, and this was no more evident in his decision to leave Supergroove. It would be a difficult decision for anyone, but at the age of 19 and without his parents around at that time, Paul had to make this difficult decision by himself. Yes, he sought the input of one or two others he felt he could talk to, but essentially it came down to his values. And at that time, if it had stayed with the band, he would have been going against his values. I can't overstate how amazing I think this story is and how much I admire Paul for sticking to his guns, as he called it. That would be a massive decision for anyone. And his ability to, again, remain composed and deal with what's in front of him whilst thinking about how he would feel in the future if he didn't continue, continue to live by his values is remarkable. It speaks to the character of Paul. Now, what was also interesting is that he was happy to state that his values changed over time and that if he happened to make that decision now, it might have been a different decision. I think this is important. Our values are something we should live to but not be a slave to. As we grow older and wiser and things change, we change too. Our values should serve us, enable us to be the best that we can be in any given moment, as Paul said. However, we shouldn't feel that once we have values in place and we've made decisions based on these values, that that's it, we're stuck with them. Again, I think it's really, this demonstrates Paul's ability to understand how things work. One final piece of wisdom that came from Paul's interview, and this was something Paul had recognised he needed to work on, was the ability to live in the moment and to do so more. What was interesting for me was that there's a dichotomy between Paul being able to visualize the future in order to get through a challenge, tempered with the need to spend more time in the now. And both are necessary, they've been necessary for Paul. He faced his fears and his challenges, and at the same time needed to be in the moment to be, as he stated, at his best self in that space whether that was creating music or creating a moment in amongst the elements while surfing. I wonder if there's a connection between this and his current band's name, Midwave Breaks. After giving this some thought, what I took from this is the need to create good balance between being in the here and now, enjoying what's happening, being present, with the ability to look ahead and see where we're going and to imagine what it might be like on the other side. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Paul's story as much as I did, and hopefully you've been able to take something away that maybe you can apply in some aspect to your life, work, and legacy. Use it. Don't sit on it. Share it with others. Sharing is like teaching. It helps it cement things in our mind and helps us to commit to change, which is always required if we want to enhance our life's work. I wish you well for the future. I hope you are happy, safe, and successful in all that you do. And remember... Live a life that is a story worth retelling. I'm Steve Worsley, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Life's Work, the podcast all about wisdom worth sharing.